And so in Mobile, in the first three months in 1946, after the uh, after the Boswell Amendment becomes law, no black people are registered. And in the 24 months that the Boswell Amendment exists on the records as the law of Alabama, 104 black Mobilians registered to vote and 3,000 whites registered to vote. And if you compound that across all of Alabama's 67 counties, you see uh, sort of the, the fact that, that initially this plan to circumvent the Smith decision works. Hello. I'm Tanya Scott-Williams, your host for Why It Matters, Black Alabamians and the Vote, an Alabama Humanities Alliance podcast. And you just heard from Mr. Scotty Kirkland of the Alabama Departments of Archives and History, author of the forthcoming book, Jordan's Stormy Banks, Politics and Race in 20th Century Mobile, Alabama. In this episode, I talk with Kirkland about Operation Suffrage, a post-World War II voting rights struggle with major repercussions. Listen in as our podcast continues to explore Black Alabamians' long fight to fully engage in the electoral process. This conversation includes project poet Ms. Ashley M. Jones, who you'll hear throughout each episode. Let's join the conversation with Ms. Jones. Thank you, Tanya. Um, In thinking about uh, Mr. LaFleur and the topic for tonight, I thought a lot about um, education because he did have involvement with desegregating schools and um, working on that side of the movement as well. And also because yesterday we celebrated MLK Day of Service or whatever you would like to call it, I decided I wanted to start with a poem about Morehouse College. Um, And this poem begins with a quote from an article that sort of sets up what I'm gonna discuss in the piece. It's called, there is a bell at Morehouse College. And the quote reads, the bell on campus is used not only to commemorate joyous occasions, admitting a new class and bidding farewell to another, but it's also rung in times of crisis. Earlier in the college's history, it was a warning of threats from the region's active Ku Klux Klan. And that's from Matthew McKnight's article, Obama and Morehouse, The Bell Tolls. Some bells say, time to sup, come and get it. It's ready, y'all come eat. Some bells named Clara, some bells named Lula, some Liberty. This bell got many names. This bell, a joy bell. This bell, a siren. Some days it say, run. We ring it when they come over the hill, rising white steeples, their hoods. We ring it, we ring it, ring, ring away. When they come to burn us down, we ring. They ready to eat, and we the meat. Thank you. Thank you for that, Ashley. Tonight's discussion will be the Boswell Amendment and the fight waged against uh, its Jim Crow intentions by mobile activists. And in particular, we're going to focus on Mr. John L. LaFleur. Helping us to navigate this topic is Mr. Scotty. E. Kirkland. Mr. Kirkland is a writer and historian of the modern South and serves as exhibits, publications, and programs coordinator for the Alabama Department of Archives and History. He holds degrees in history and social science from the Troy University's Dothan campus and the University of South Alabama. He's the author of a forthcoming book, Jordan's Stormy Banks, Politics and Race in 20th Century Mobile, Alabama. 
His research and writing about his native state have earned recognition from the Alabama Historical Association, Gulf South Historical Association, and the Lillian E. Smith Center. His next project is called After the Bridge and explores voting rights in Alabama since 1965. Mr. Kirkland, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Thank you for having me, Tanya. I'm really glad to be here. And thanks to the folks at Alabama Humanities and to Ms. Jones as well. It's a really, really fine program and I'm pleased to be invited tonight. I've uh, had the privilege to talk to you a few times before tonight's discussion. So uh, we are really gonna take a deep dive and try to narrow down some of the things that we kind of talked about in advance and certainly with some of the research that, uh, that I've done and certainly you've done around this topic. Um, so we'll just, we'll just dive right in. Uh, if black Alabama citizens had access to the polls, and that's really a lot of what our discussions will be around this series. So having access to the polls, they could potentially upend or undermine uh, the white racial hierarchy in the state. So in post-World War II America, segregated systems were beginning to fall apart. They were being challenged left and right, and particularly uh, driven by the NAACP, which was behind a lot of those challenges. So Mr. John L. LaFleur, the executive secretary of the Mobile Chapter, he launched an effort to test, if you would, um, a recent U.S. Supreme Court ruling uh, against whites only primaries. And in response to that, the Alabama legislature passed the Boswell Amendment, the voter qualification law, which was designed to suppress the black vote. I'd like to start first by looking at who Mr. LaFleur was. If you could tell us a bit about who he was. Sure. No, I'm happy to. Uh, so John LaFleur is uh, a native Mobilian. He's born in 1903, uh, in Mobile. His father is a workman for the Louisville and Nashville Railroad, which of course runs directly through Mobile. Uh, his mother is a uh, domestic worker. His father dies when he's less than a year old. LaFleur is the youngest of five children. And uh, this is really devastating for the family, obviously. And LaFleur uh, and his older brothers and sister, they go to work at a young age. And one of the earliest memories that LaFleur had was of selling newspapers along the docks, selling the, the mobile register on the docks. And he would sit uh, after he finished that work, he would sit on the docks with his older brother, George, who would use the newspaper to teach him uh, how better to read. And uh, LaFleur remembered very vividly a, a scene of a, a day they were sitting uh, on the docks reading and a white man walked up and snatched the paper from young John LaFleur and balled it up and threw it into the Mobile River and said that black people weren't supposed to read. Of course, he didn't say black people. Uh, this was a formative event for John LaFleur and he, you know, remembered it all throughout his, his life. Education was important to LaFleur, so I'm glad that Miss Jones started with the poem that references Morehouse College. Uh, LaFleur would have loved to go to Morehouse or any other school. He had aspirations to be a lawyer. Uh, that wasn't in the cards for the youngest son of a poor Black family in Mobile in the early 20th century. Uh, so LaFleur went to work. Uh, early on, he two things worked in his favor. He uh, passed the civil service examination, which allowed him to gain access to employment, federal employment, as a postman. 
Uh, he was a letter carrier in Mobile from the 1920s until his retirement in 1964. About the same time that he became a uh, fully uh, employed federal worker, he also married, and he married well. He married into a prominent African-American family. And so this gave LaFleur uh, the stature for the first time in his life that he had been looking for. Uh, but it also came at around the same time as he was pushing up against a lot of uh, the, the Jim Crow South, a lot of the restrictions. And uh, by LaFleur's telling, the event that sort of made him see what his life's work would be, which would be in advocating for civil rights, uh, came on a streetcar, uh, a segregated streetcar where he was told at the end of a long day to give up his seat, uh, and he refused initially, and the uh, a white passenger and he got into a scuffle, and they tumbled out of the streetcar onto the busy street, and the streetcar driver um, separated the two and held LaFleur at gunpoint until the Mobile police arrived. The white passenger was allowed to board the streetcar and go home. John LaFleur spent the night in jail. Uh, when he got out the next morning, he went home and he talked over the event with his wife, Tia, his father-in-law, and he decided to write a letter to the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the headquarters in New York City. And he said, tell me what I must do to revive Mobile's branch. Mobile had had a branch in about three years. Uh, uh, an effort to start it had faltered shortly after the end of World War I. And so LaFleur begins correspondence with Ralph Bunch uh, and Walter White, who's the director of the NAACP. Uh, and he quickly gets the new branch started. And very early on uh, in that process, he writes a letter to Walter White. And he says, you know, living here in this land of bigotry where might makes right, where anything can be used to take rights away from men like myself, I can fully appreciate what the NAACP would mean to a black person in the South. And so he becomes utterly committed to equality. He's a trusted organizer for the NAACP. Uh, they send him into Mississippi, they send him into Florida, and he builds up this branch in the middle of the depression. Uh, and it becomes one of the few branches in, in Alabama that started before the Great Depression that manages to sort of make it through into the better days of World War II. And World War II really changes Mobile, and it changes uh, John LaFleur as well. It, it gives him a broader base of support. Uh, the, the Black population in Mobile grew from about 26,000 to about 50,000 during the war years. There's a partnership between the NAACP and organized labor. And so when people... Uh, that came when black workers came to Mobile, they were often on the same day issued their labor union card and their NAACP card. And so this gives LaFleur a bigger pool from which to work. And that begins to show real change. And so he emerges from World War II with a broader base of local power, but he has a bit of a ceiling because. Of, of, of where he is geographically, but also sort of where, uh, where Mobile fits into this broader story of civil rights uh, cities in the South. Uh, you know, Mobile is not Birmingham, and it's, it's not as close to Atlanta. It's not as close to these centers of power. And the NAACP national leadership, they just really, they, they never fully bring LaFleur into the tent. 
Uh, and, you know, John the floor, like all of us, uh, is human. You know, he has feet of clay. Uh, he sometimes has a bad temper. He sometimes uh, is too frequent in his criticisms of the national office. Uh, and so they, they treat him as a trusted lieutenant, but they don't see him in the same circles as some of the leaders in Birmingham, uh, E.D. Nixon, uh, and others in the state. And so this, this is something that LaFleur has to work against, but he's still fully committed to the tenets of the NAACP throughout the end of World War II, um, really because you know, he, he sees it as, as he said once, it was the Gibraltar for the race, and he felt like it was what needed to happen was that they needed to pursue it through their programs. So that that gets us to the point in Lafleur's professional career where the Boswell Amendment comes into play. So let's let's look a, a little bit uh, closer at what's happening. You brought up Mobile in that time. This is uh, post-war Alabama, and you said the black population had expanded, but that had a lot to do uh, with the increased well the opportunities for jobs, jobs which in many cases, meant competition uh, between blacks and whites for that. So the social and economic climate was changing dramatically in Mobile. Folks were moving in, they were starting businesses. And so this was rubbing up against the status quo. And so we have Mr. LaFleur, who has, with other residents of the area, you know, reactivated the NAACP. And they are not only pushing for access for jobs and education, but this is you know, this is creating some tension, which does have some, some pushback. Um, you know, maintaining the whites only uh, status quo was important for the power players at that time. Um, but just before we go into the, the conversation a little bit about the, the Boswell Amendment, uh, the NAACP uh, ran into an issue where it was barred in the state. So how did this period, which was about eight years when it, it could no longer be active, how did this impact the work that uh, he was doing in Mobile? Right. So the NAACP's outlawed in Alabama uh, in 1956. So it comes a little after the sort of the, the immediate post-war period. It comes uh, really as a reaction on the part of Alabama officials to uh, a couple of things, to the Brown decision. Uh, to the Montgomery bus boycott and to the attempted, uh, ultimately unsuccessful enrollment of Arthur and Lucy on the University of Alabama uh, campus in Tuscaloosa. Uh, and so the, the power structure of Alabama, principally uh, John Patterson, who is the uh, newly elected attorney general at that point, uh, they really blame uh, all of this on the NAACP, and 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 he looks to uh, the state code and to a provision in the 1901 Constitution that says that all all corporations that have their headquarters located beyond the borders of Alabama have to register as an outside or a foreign corporation. Well, this was not something that was readily enforced, uh, but it was what they used to convince uh, a already sympathetic judge in Montgomery County uh, that the NAACP should be outlawed. And so what this does is it launches uh, a, a fairly long uh, legal battle that goes all the way to the Supreme Court twice uh, that really sets 
into firm legal jurisprudence for the first time this idea that you have the freedom of association. Mm-hmm. You know, freedoms of speech, freedoms of religion, freedom of the press, those types of things were already firmly embedded in our constitutional principle. But the freedom of association up to that point was a little uh, was a little less firm. And so that's basically the argument that the NAACP lawyers, which includes uh, early on the great Fred Gray uh, from, from Alabama, the argument that they make is basically this is a protected constitutional right, that I have the right to belong to the NAACP, that you have the right to belong to an organization that you choose as long as they aren't you know, doing anything beyond the bounds of legality. And so this goes to the Supreme Court uh, and takes a while. You know, it takes eight years. In that intervening time from 1956 until 1964, things happen differently in different parts of Alabama. Birmingham is a good example. The NAACP in Birmingham, when it's outlawed, has a new, young, vibrant membership secretary. His name's Fred Shuttlesworth. Now, Shuttlesworth isn't quite like some of the other older members of the Birmingham chapter of the NAACP. He wants to go further. He wants to go faster. Taking away the NAACP sort of unbinds the hands of younger men like Fred Shuttlesworth that want to do things a little different. The same is true of John LaFleur in Mobile to a degree. Uh, John LaFleur, because of what had happened in World War II and because of the Boswell Amendment and this, this continued sort of ceiling that he runs into with the national office, has been shown the efficacy of a grassroots organization. The Boswell Amendment, if it did nothing else, it proved to LaFleur that he didn't necessarily need the, the umbrella of the NAACP to get stuff done in Mobile. And so there are major leadership changes and major initiative changes throughout Alabama because of the ban on the NAACP, except in Mobile. What happens there is that everything just shifts from the NAACP to a shadow group, a group that's been in, in, in existence since at least the mid-1940s called the Nonpartisan Voters League. Uh, This is an organization that did the political things, like endorsing candidates, making political statements that the NAACP branch couldn't do. And so this this is one of the reasons why Mobile in the mid-1960s remains, when compared to Birmingham or Selma, quieter. Now, that's oftentimes misunderstood as saying that Mobile had a peaceful civil rights revolution. Nothing could be further from the truth, uh, but it was on a slightly different timetable than what you see in Birmingham. And one of the reasons for that is the way that the grassroots was organized in Mobile before the banning of the NAACP. So in many ways, they were already a little bit ahead in that planning. Uh, and, and historians have argued that the, the plan that John Patterson and others in the state had outlawing the NAACP was going to was going to stop this this urge for equality, stop all this growing agitation to to push back against the the tenets of Jim Crow. Uh, that that actually had the opposite effect; that it actually accelerated the fight for freedom in places like Birmingham and Selma, because absent the NAACP's more rigid sort of top down approach, the grassroots began to have more authority. 
I think it was Mr. Shovelsworth who said um, after hearing that the NAACP had been barred, you know, that, you know, and I paraphrase, basically, you know, shutting down the organization is not going to stop the people from pressing forward for their fight for freedom. You know, this, oh. you know, this, this organization is not going to shut off that push uh, for equal rights uh, in the state. Um, I want to invite Ms. Jones back uh, into our conversation. This evening, Ms. Jones is the uh, is our poet for this series, and she has selected uh, some uh, some items from her collection to share with us. And I think she has uh, one that she's going to share with us now, um, Ms. Jones. And I'm leave it to you. Yes, thank you. Um, I thought about um, that moment that Scotty told us about in uh, Mr. Lafleur's life, where the man told him um, black people black people shouldn't read. Um, and I thought about all the ways that um, Black people are suppressed in our daily lives and how we have had to, you know, come above all of those things to, um, to do things like what Mr. LaFleur did in his life. So I wanted to read a piece um, from Dark Thing, um, which sort of talks about that idea. And it is called Slur It. It's a sonnet made up of slurs. It doesn't include that slur that the person probably called Mr. LaFleur, but many others. Um, and it sort of talks about that spirit of trying to rise above these issues um, that he faced and um, you know, that we are still in many ways facing. It's called Slur It, as I said. You a spade, a spook, an open-mouthed black pickaninny, ashy Aunt Jemima, a maracoon, you blue-gummed beluga, you cotton-picking jigaboo, you drenched in chicken grease, you watermelon head, you tar-skinned porch monkey, ain't never gonna get a job, you yes-sir shucking jiver, you hanging tree baboon. For years, we watched you bleed beneath our skin splintering whip. We watched your eyes embolden, swell like veins. You turned your begging hands to thick brown fists. What are you made of? What fabric sustains its fibers, stays elastic despite rips, embossed with flame, but a brocade remains. You have a way of putting your finger on the pulse of things. Thank you so much for that, uh, Ashley. So Scotty, let's let's turn our attention to the Boswell Amendment. Um, sorry, I, I, I was kind of stuck there in, in what um, Ashley just shared with us, and especially in light of Mr. LaFleur and that moment on the dock, just seeing all of those things come together. You know, these are real lives. These are these are people who right. lived through some a really awful period in American history, which in some ways is seeming like we're we may be going into some of that now, but I won't I won't jump too far ahead in that. Uh, so for a moment that just kind of had me there. Um, but Alabama voters, they ratified the Boswell Amendment um, after it passed the legislature. Uh, this was in 1946. And so this was um, kind of a response to the Supreme Court decision in Texas. Um, so can you tell us what that, that, uh, that ruling was? And then what did Alabama lawmakers hope that by enacting this law, it would prevent here in this state? Sure. Uh, so the Supreme Court case uh, that comes out of Texas is called Smith v. Allwright, and it's in April of 1944. So within sort of that last year uh, of, of World War II, 
what this case did was uh, outlaw a practice that just just really a few years earlier, in 1935, the Supreme Court had said was okay. And it was this practice of white-only primaries, these selective primaries in Southern states. And so the argument for decades had been that political primaries, the Democratic Party's primary, was basically an elite social club that they had the power to restrict access to their primaries. So they could dictate that if you came to the polls to register uh, and you were not white, that you could not register as a Democrat, that the Democratic Party was exclusively for whites only. And so the Smith case, what happens is the the, the Smith case, which in the architect of, of this uh, new argument by the NAACP is, of course, Thurgood Marshall. This is one of his really early uh, big sort of cases that, that, that Brown will be as well, where he combines several other things and makes this big packaged argument to the Supreme Court. So in April of 1944, the court wipes out white primaries. And what that does is it opens up for the first time a possibility that in a state like Alabama, bigger, um, bigger portions of African-American voters who register can register in the Democratic Party. Of course, the Republican Party uh, is, 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 you know, sort of statistically uh, null and void at this point in the South. So the Democratic primary is where it's at. The person that wins the Democratic primary is 99.9% of the time going to be the person who ultimately wins that office. Uh, and so what happens in Alabama, uh, two things happen. The, the Smith decision exposes uh, a, a flaw, really, in the in the pretty rigid voter suppression uh, that had been placed into the 1901 Constitution. There are really four things uh, in that document that made certain that most African-Americans and many poor whites could not register to vote. Uh, There was a literacy test. There was a two-year residency requirement. So that's really aimed at this agricultural-based population. So moving around, if you move out of a county line, you have to start over. There was a cumulative poll tax. And so that, of course, compounds every year. It's $1.25, I believe. And so it becomes a real financial burden uh, to, to vote. And the other thing that there is, is this um, requirement that you have $300 worth of real property. Now, I went to an inflation calculator just this afternoon and looked. In 1901, $300 was the equivalent in 1905, in 1945, of just $100. So what cost you $300 in 1901 would only cost you $100 at the end of World War II. And so what that meant is that, you know, if you if, if, if black voters paid their poll tax, if they found two people that would vouch for their character, uh, if they could pass their literacy test, and if they had an automobile or a vehicle that was assessed at taxation at more than $100, because of the Smith decision, they could vote. And Alabama said, we have to find a way to get around this. And the architect of this argument really uh, is is from Mobile. Uh, His name is Gessner T. McCorvey. 
And McCorvey is the chairman of the state Democratic Party, has been since the 1930s. He's really one of the architects of the coming Dixiecrat revolt in the state that'll, that'll happen centered around Harry Truman's nomination for president. Uh, that, that's coming up in 1948. But McCorvey and some of the lawyers in the state, they, they craft this idea uh, of an understanding clause. And so what the Boswell Amendment did, and it's called the Boswell Amendment because the legislator who introduced it uh, to, the, to the state legislature, his name was Bud Boswell. He's a Geneva County representative. So the amendment bears his name, but the architect of it was really, uh, was really Gessner McCorvey. Um, Anyone who registered to vote uh, had to understand and explain to a registrar's satisfaction a section of the U.S. Constitution. And it was up to that registrar to determine if they had done so to his or her satisfaction. So two things there. Uh, number one, the Supreme Court, which is, you know, historically populated by some of the, the, the most brilliant legal minds in the country, routinely disagree about interpretations of certain sections of the Constitution. It's why we have a court system. Uh, number two, it's purposefully vague, this Boswell Amendment, because it invests all the power in those local registrars. Right. And so they decide who gets to vote. So it's a, it's a blatant, overt form of voter suppression because it doesn't treat everyone on an equal footing. Uh, but there's really no immediate protection to keep it from becoming the law in Alabama. Uh, all that comes later. All those immediate sort of triggers that you see that would have prevented this thing from even getting on the ballot don't show up until the 1960s. And so the amendment passes overwhelmingly in the Alabama House and Senate and gets 55% of the vote statewide and gets on the books. And so in Mobile, in the first three months in 1946, after the, uh, after the Boswell Amendment becomes law, no black people are registered. And in the 24 months that the Boswell Amendment exists on the records as the law of Alabama, 104 black Mobilians registered to vote and 3,000 whites registered to vote. And if you compound that across all of Alabama's 67 counties, you see uh, sort of the, the fact that, that initially this plan to circumvent the Smith decision works. But what they don't expect, I think, is this grassroots challenge uh, in the courts. And they certainly, I don't think, expect uh, to be immediately struck down uh, in the district court and to have the Supreme Court in March of 1948 affirm that decision. And so the Boswell Amendment has a short life, but a lot of things that we, uh, that we, associate with post-World War II Alabama civil rights. You've got this, you've got this emerging grassroots movement, right? And within the Democratic Party, you've got these moderates that are more aligned with Harry Truman and the National Democrats. And you've got the Dixiecrats. You've got all these things working together. Uh, you've got organized labor in some aspects of Alabama's religious communities working with these civil rights groups. You've got you've got sort of the, the pieces that we see that will that will sort of square off against each other in the 50s and into the 60s. They're all in the 1940s around the Boswell Amendment. They're all sort of setting into place. So I really felt this was an important time uh, period to examine because it also, it, it situates Mobile more firmly into that story 
uh, because the Boswell Amendment literally lives and dies in Mobile. It, it's born in Mobile. It's fought harshly in Mobile. And the case that ultimately tears it down and wipes it away from Alabama's code comes from Mobile as well. You pointed out in a conversation that we had uh, before tonight um, a connection uh, between the architects of the Boswell Amendment and the framers of the 1901 Constitution. And um, can you describe for us what that connection is and, and why is that significant? Right. The the people, including Gessner McCorvey, that, that conceived the amendment and who promoted its passage uh, for, throughout the people of Alabama during this referendum in 1946, had a deep reverence for the framers of that 1901 Constitution. They had a real, almost like a fealty to it as this document uh, that had only you know been around for just under two generations. Um, McCorvey uh, as a young uh, law student, comes to Montgomery. He's, he's in Tuscaloosa at the time. He comes to Montgomery to watch some of the proceedings. His father, uh, who's a professor of history and philosophy at the University of Alabama, uh, knows a lot of these men who are involved. And that's true of most of the people in the Democratic uh, State Party by the, the 1940s. There's this reverence for the way that, that the framers had had so thoroughly wound that, uh, that ball together as far as voter suppression, to, to wipe out all of the remaining remnants of any sort of black equality from Reconstruction. And what happens then is that, you know, things, things, uh, reality changes, you know, the, the economics is not the only thing that changes. The, the, the broader percentage of voting age African-Americans is, is much larger in the 1940s than it is in 1901. But there's this, this feeling, this, 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 this very, I think, um, feeling that, that we would recognize today um, of, of wanting to go back to something that was that was better that was that was greater in a way uh, that that just isn't wasn't really based in in a reality but it's it's blatant the, of the better days the old exactly. days exactly mm-hmm. yeah and and they they use that McCorvey uh, is uh, among other things he's one of the first uh, Democratic Party leaders that really understands PR Tanya he he has a statewide campaign in support of the amendment that's newspaper ads, radio spots. Uh, he gets the six living signatories of the 1901 Constitution, uh, some of them in their in their 80s, and trots them around the state making speeches for it. And he really lines up support for it. And they say that, you know, supporting this amendment will prevent the state from falling into black hands. And, you know, in another bit of a parallel to to some of our more modern events. Um, Georgia is a bellwether here. Uh, Georgia, who had a similar law that was sort of wiped off the books by the Smith decision, uh, they also see uh, the end of their poll tax because of some some moves in the legislature in the post-World War II era. And that opens really the floodgates for massive African-American registrations for the first time. And you see those things really for a brief moment before the Dixiecrat uh, moment starts in in 48 and then everything that comes after it, you see in some of these states, Alabama included, 
just the smallest glimmer of, of hope for something different, you know, and in, in Alabama, that's James Folsom's election, you know, Big Jim's election in 1946. So on the same ballot where the Boswell Amendment passes, Folsom is elected. So there's a bit of a, a cross current there. It's Alabama sort of at this crossroads moment. Um, it's, it's a really important election, but it's got echoes of 1901, and it's a prelude to what comes later in the 50s and 60s with our civil rights movement. Add this question. I think this is a good one for this moment. Uh, so we have post-war Alabama. We have uh, veterans coming back from war. Were any of those uh, proponents of the Boswell Amendment, were any of them uh, World War II veterans? Yes, yes, many of them were. Uh, you know, historians talk about this uh, this period of time, uh, and often oftentimes they they talk about it as part of the GI revolt. You know, this notion that uh, soldiers, especially African American soldiers, return uh, fighting. They return with the idea that they have wiped out fascism uh, abroad. Now they're going to come home and confront uh, racism in the same way. Uh, many of the young supporters. Or, excuse me, young opponents of the Boswell Amendment were veterans. Uh, in Mobile, uh, you had several African-American veterans who joined a grassroots group called the Veterans, or excuse me, called the Voters and Veterans Association. This is the group, grassroots organization started by an associate minister of a local church. Uh, his name is J.J. Thomas, uh, Jasper Thomas. Um, they are populated by largely returning veterans and war workers. Uh, and the lead plaintiff in the case that they filed against the Boswell Amendment, Hunter Davis, he was a labor leader and had worked on the docks uh, during the war. Uh, one of the most prominent elected officials who opposed the amendment uh, was Joseph Langan, who was a newly elected state senator from Mobile, who was also uh, a combat veteran, had been in the Pacific Theater. And he uh, comes back uh, and, and sees things uh, in his native mobile that he saw uh, when he was overseas, and he doesn't like that. And between his overseas experience, sort of opening his eyes to injustice, uh, and his uh, Catholic upbringing, his Jes Jesuit, excuse me, Jesuit education, uh, he really takes on the Boswell Amendment. And this is a real a thorn in the side of Gesture McCorvey, this this young uh, sort of populist, moderate Democrat uh, from Mobile named Joe Langan. Um, so those are two in Birmingham. Uh, there there are similar organizations. They're full of hundreds and hundreds of, of veterans. Um, there's a, a really fantastic book by uh, Michelle Norris, you know, who used to uh, co-anchor uh, on NPR, All Things Considered. It's called The Grace of Silence. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's a personal story about a member of her family who was involved in one of these veterans organizations in Birmingham and who was uh, who shot during a a uh, registration day that, that turned violent because so many people had turned out and wanted to uh, exercise their rights, uh, their constitutional rights to be allowed to registered to vote and it turned violent and he was shot and, and, and hid it from his family. She don't think knew about it until after this, after this family uh, member had, had passed away. It's a wonderful book. The research was, you know, uh, was compiled in Birmingham thanks to 
Jim Baggett and some of the wonderful people at the Birmingham Public Library, but it, it talks about some of this as well. Mm. So we have activists uh, like Mr. LaFleur, and as you said, Mobile is sort of the, the center of a lot of activity um, at this time, different than what was happening in other parts of the state. So we have activists like Mr. LaFleur and his contemporaries, and, and they are responding to the demands of the day. What you're describing right now, some of the veterans coming back from war, having seen life outside of the United States and having, uh, especially for some of the whites at the time, interacting with African-Americans in ways that they might not hear in the States. And then really for some, maybe questioning you know, systems. So you, you, you have all these changes that are happening and, uh, and this demands some sort of action. And so if we look now to where we are in our current landscape, you know, it seems as if in, in some cases, you know, we have forces that, that want to go backwards. They want to you know, turn the hands of time back, as we were saying earlier, to supposedly better days. Uh, and it all depends on who those who are you talking about when you say better days. Uh, so uh, there seem to be voter suppression tactics uh, that are being used today. Um, you know, it, it hasn't gone away. It's, it's evolved. Uh, however, you know, we've had these moments when we see efforts like in, in Georgia uh, with the U.S. Senate runoff there, uh, where, you know, uh, Republican incumbents were unseated, you know, uh, and they were defeated primarily because of activists, grassroots activists who have, uh, you know, taken the mantle and gone out and, and continued to do the work. Uh, that, and that plays an essential role in, in overcoming some of these efforts. Let's look at who today who the, the LaFleurs are today uh, among Alabamians. Um, any standout for you in particular? Well, I think, um, you know, corporately, I think, you know, in Birmingham, there's there's the Greater Birmingham Ministries, uh, which is, I think, doing a lot of the similar work. But, you know, the, the reference to Georgia you made, Tanya, I think is, is really important and uh, immediately calls to mind uh, Latasha Brown, you know, who is an Alabamian, uh, she spent some time in Mobile and in Selma, and her organization, Black Voters Matter, you know, is one of those that's on the ground in some of these states, and who's doing this work. But you know, work is the is the right word for it because it's it, it's it's heavy stuff, you know, and it's not something that you can sort of slack off on, you know. I mean, these are these are uh, constant things that require that re require tending. Uh, and, and it's not something that you can do once and, and go away. You know, there, there were, there were the, the numbers between the November 3rd races in Georgia and then the runoff uh, in early January, you know, were, were proof of that, that, that black uh, participation in the Georgia primaries went up, which bucked a, a historic trend otherwise. Um, but one of the parallels, I think, that we see today um, between where we are now uh, and where the people of the Boswell era were is that very much like Alabamians and Americans in the 1940s, we today are living without the full protections of a federal voting, voting rights act. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, uh, the district court that ultimately struck down the Boswell Amendment did so because they said the 15th Amendment guarded against such, uh, such uh, regulations, but had to go all the way through that process. 
Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which existed from 1965 until it was outlawed in the Shelby case a couple of years ago, uh, would have prevented the Boswell Amendment from ever reaching, uh, from ever becoming law. Uh, it was this, this notion of preclearance, that there were certain things having to do with the way that, that states, certain states, Alabama included, uh, choose their 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 voting reg- regulations that had to have pre-clearance from the Justice Department. They had to meet certain metrics. Well, that goes away after the Shelby case, uh, where Section Five is is sort of gutted. Uh, that changes things, you know. And we've seen in states throughout the country um, forms of of you know forms of suppression that aren't as oftentimes overt as something like an understanding clause that you have with Boswell, um, but that are there nonetheless. And, you know, just, just speaking for my, for myself, um, you know, any, anything that makes voting harder, anything that makes it take longer, anything that, that, that adds a step to it uh, in our world can be seen as voter suppression. And those things in a in a climate where we had the full protection of the 1965 Voting Rights Act uh, look differently than they do without it. And a lot of the things that we see in some in some states, uh, ours included, you know, has a real uh, has a real different look to it right now in in our post Shelby world. You know, there, there's talk that you know with with the new Congress and and with our new uh, newly elected president that, that they're going to revisit the Shelby case, and there's a there's a precedent for that as well, and it has an Alabama and a Mobile connection. Uh, in 1980, the Supreme Court uh, sided with the city of Mobile in a case that was filed by John Lafleur in the months before his death. Uh, filed in October of 1975, uh, Wiley Bolden, who was one of his original members of that newly organized NAACP. Uh, so the Bolden case, Wiley versus Wiley Bolden versus City of Mobile, uh, said that Mobile's at-large form of government. So you elect three commissioners, and they stand for for election at large in the city. That that diluted the pockets of African American uh, voters within the city. Um, that goes all the way to the Supreme Court, and they say it's a violation of the Fourteenth Amendment, and it's a violation of Section Two of the Voting Rights Act and the Fifteenth Amendment as well. Uh, the Supreme Court sides with the city and says, no, it's not, because Section 2 isn't specific enough. It says that it has the uh, the effect of being discriminatory. But under the current reading of Section 2, that Supreme Court, which was fairly conservative, said it has to have the specific intent. So the difference between effect and intent became uh, the reasoning they struck the case down and sent it back to the lower court. Well, the, the democratically controlled U.S. Senate was so incensed by this ruling that when the Voting Rights Act came up for re-ratification in 1982, they introduced a mobile amendment to change the verbiage of Section 2 to say that if any change of government has the effect of discriminating against voters, then it's not, it's not allowed. It's unconstitutional. And so we're probably on the verge of seeing something like that again, where what has happened in states like Alabama post Shelby v. Holder will be looked at 
with fresh eyes uh, and and looked at uh, with a with a federal remedy in mind. You know, all the states don't have to have the exact same voter laws. It doesn't make sense for Alaska and Maine to have um, to have the same to have the exact same laws sometimes. But there have to be certain stopgaps, certain protections along the way. And I think that that cases like the Boswell Amendment show that that's a historical fact. There have to be certain metrics that all all these states should have to meet. And that was the the point of preclearance in the 1965 Voter uh, Voting Rights Act. Mm. Uh, we'll, we'll take another look at uh, Mobile. I wanted to ask a question about that before we bring uh, Ms. Jones back on to share another poem with us. Yeah, I've had a great conversation and, and been able to spend a little more time on the subject, which is always a good thing. Um, but let's look at Mobile today. Uh, what is the um, what does suffrage look like in Mobile in terms of activists and the work that's being done there? Right, sure. Uh, well, Mobile in 2009. Uh, the Census Bureau announced that Mobile, for the first time, uh, was, you know, in in, in their terms, a uh, minority-majority community. African Americans composed, uh, for the first time, a statistical majority in Mobile. Uh, since 1985, there's been a districted commission former government with a with a mayor. Uh, so there there are district commissioners, and then a mayor who stands for election at large. Um, in that time, there have been uh, four, five, five mayors, one of whom has been African-American, uh, Sam Jones, who served for three terms, I believe, uh, who's now in the state legislature. Um, there are active uh, organizations in Mobile. The, the Nonpartisan Voters League, which is the group that Lafleur starts uh, while the NAACP is outlaw, outlawed, it's no longer in existence. But there are other groups uh, that, that take on some of the same work. There's a, an, a very active Black Lives Matter uh, movement in Mobile, uh, and, and they work very, you know, and of course, I, I don't live in Mobile anymore, but I, I'm still, I still watch them from afar and have great admiration for many of the people who are continuing to work to, to improve the city. And, um, you know, there'll be, a, there'll be an election for mayor, uh, I gather next year, or, or actually this year, uh, this this coming August, I believe. And so, uh, those are questions that'll come back. You know, what what what's Mobile supposed to look like? What what are the things that we that that they value? Those are questions that are important. You know, and they're important for this particular moment that we're in, the the year that we've all had. Uh, and, and it's important to have those discussions in in any community. Uh, Mobile is. Uh, unique in some ways in in the state and, and some of the the forces of, of, of change and some of the, the aspects that that affect the the economy and, and the community but but they're having hopefully uh, a, a season of extended uh, and civil conversations about the future of the city for the next four years very good and we have a minute or two to bring Ms. Jones back on with us uh, before we say our goodbyes to, to Scotty tonight. And I would love to close out with a poem from you before I say my goodbyes. Do you have something for us, Ms. Jones? I do. Um, I have been thinking about um, this conversation and suppression, voter suppression, but also the ways that um, suppression seeps into all parts of life. Um, and one of those 
things I thought about was redlining. Um, I semi-recently moved over the mountain. If you're from Birmingham, you know what I mean, or from Alabama, period, you know what I mean? Um, and that has been a strange experience for reasons we don't have time to go into. But um, I started to notice some of the discrepancies that I'd always assumed existed as a lifelong resident of Birmingham. And I also started to experience some um, silent animosity from people um, in my neighborhood um, because I'm one of a few Black people where I live. Mm -hmm. So this is a poem that I wrote in response to that. Redlining. Oh, what? You thought I didn't belong here? You thought your street was me-proof? Thought here was a place only lilies could grow? Can you hear my skin before you see it? Can you hear the rap I'm blasting down your perfect street? Here, take it. Every beat will fight for me. If you can hear it, that means I'm winning. That means you can't hurt me here. Means I'm belonging if it's the last thing I do. Did you hear the one about the black girl who just wanted to mind her own business in a country, state, city, suburb, where their only business is making sure I'm not here? Where my face, my body, my God, my hair, even my right to write this sonnet right here is policed stared down, is burned fast as ether. Thank you. Thank you, Ashley. And thank you, Scotty, for, for being here tonight, taking the time to, to share your thoughts with us. Uh, it's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Tonya. Thank you, Ashley. And thanks to the folks at Alabama Humanities Alliance for helping us uh, come together and have these important discussions. You've been listening to Why It Matters, Black Alabamians in the Vote, presented by the Alabama Humanities Alliance and funded by the Why It Matters Civic and Electoral Participation Initiative, administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils and funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. I'm your host, Tanya Scott-Williams. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the Alabama Humanities Alliance, go to alabamahumanities.org.